This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. For the last show of 2021, I was first joined by historian Emma Shortus and The Guardian's social affairs and inequality editor Luc-Henrique Gomez to review the year in Australian and international politics. Then, finally, epidemiologist and World Health Organization advisor Professor Mary Louise McLaws joined me to take us through everything we need to know about the Omicron variant, the current COVID-19 outbreaks in Victoria and New South Wales, plus how we can best stay safe over the summer holiday period. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm so pleased to be joined by two wonderful regulars, Emma Shortus, who is a research fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT. She is a historian and an author of a brilliant book who... Uh, which I've read and I definitely recommend you reading. It's called Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. certainly has become a very relevant topic, even more so now. And I'm also joined by Luc-Henrique Gomez, who is based at The Guardian, and he is the Social Affairs and Inequality Editor at The Guardian Australia. And both human beings join me uh, fairly regularly to talk about a whole range of topics, including US politics, disability and welfare policy and inequality in Australia. Uh, But today we're going to be doing a bit of a big picture look at the world and also here in Australia, not just ourselves, but obviously placing ourselves in a much broader context and looking at what has happened in the last year of 2021. Uh, We are obviously reaching, you know, the finish point, and it is really a great opportunity to reflect on, yeah, the the kind of big points that we may have forgotten even happened this year, which certainly has happened to me looking back and preparing for this interview, and I'm sure for Emma and Luke as well. So I welcome them onto the program. Hey there, Emma. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. It's great to have you. And hi there, Luke. G'day, Amy. How's it going? Oh, I'm doing pretty well, actually. And um, it's funny because my baby magpie just arrived <laughs> at my window again. Good timing, isn't it? Uh, so anyway, I'll try not to be distracted by its cute little chirping. I'm going to shut the window and like close the curtains now. Um, so let's talk about 2021, which um, seems more like 2020 plus one, uh, to be honest. It certainly has kind of delivered in those stakes in the drama and the surprise. Uh, Obviously, recently with Omicron turning up, although that wasn't really a surprise to virologists and epidemiologists who expected that if we let community transmission you know, run wild in different countries, if we didn't get vaccinated fast enough, um, if there was ongoing inequality in our pandemic response, these variants would emerge. So it was really interesting to hear Kamala Harris, uh, the Vice President of America, the United States of America, say that this was a surprise to us. We didn't see it coming. And a lot of um, scientists were kind of aghast and surprised that uh, the Biden administration could say such a thing. So I thought we'd start at the fact that there is a Biden administration now uh, to, to look at that and reflect on that, but then also go back to the start of the year where we were dealing with the ongoing effects and the echoes of the Donald Trump presidency with January the 6th and the 
um, the capital riots and obviously the ongoing investigation into that. So we might start with uh, Emma and we'll bring in Luke on this as well. But Emma, looking at what has happened, we, we've had a year of a Biden presidency and obviously the positives and negatives of that certainly hasn't been all sunshine and, ro- and roses. Um, but we do also need to keep in our mind and remember what happened at the start of this year because it still has ongoing consequences, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's hard to believe that it was only, you know, almost a year ago um, that we woke up at, it was sort of like 6am, I think, Australian time to see that news coming out of the United States. And and it certainly hasn't gone away. You know, I think it's a, a period in American history that a lot of Americans in particular wish would kind of disappear and they could just forget about it. And some, some are certainly acting like it has just disappeared and it won't happen again. But, um, you know, unfortunately, I say unfortunately a lot when I'm talking about American politics, this isn't an issue that's going to, going to go away. I don't think that there's an investigation um, is ongoing in, in Congress and we've had Trump's, I think, fourth and final chief of staff has been held in criminal contempt of, of Congress because he refused to, part, to cooperate with the investigation that is happening. Um, and that investigation is ongoing but is, is under increasing pressure because it's, you know, the investigation is allowed to happen really because the Democrats have control of Congress and they are anticipating, and I think certainly a lot of media is anticipating, that they will lose that control in November next year when they have the midterm elections. And so that investigation is in a kind of race against time, I suppose, to conclude. Um, it's it's getting more experts, it's interviewing more people, it's it's adding more staff, and so it's certainly kind of, I guess, upping the ante and, and certainly hoping to get some big scalps, I suppose. But I'm I'm pretty sceptical about what the what the outcome of that investigation will have because the narrative is so set, you know, it's so deeply ingrained, especially in the kind of right wing universe, which is is really a kind of alternate one, I think, to one a lot of other people inhabit, that that riot was, you know, kind of justified or it wasn't a bigger problem as it seems or, you know, it should have succeeded. And so I think the likelihood of something like that happening again a couple of years from now or even before then is is pretty high and that's a the pretty terrifying thing to contemplate I think yeah it certainly is and the if you t- pay any attention to Donald Trump and what he's been doing recently and mm. obviously the media that uh, supports him and reinforces his messages. It, that isn't going away. It's only ramping up even more towards a new another election, um, and people still saying that you know he was wronged and he somehow won an election that he didn't. Um, yeah. One interesting thing that did come out only gosh a bit about maybe two weeks ago was a PowerPoint um, that was presented around uh, on the 4th of January to Republican senators, um, which was basically being circulated and coming up with a game plan of how they were going to, like, retain office. Um, And it had all these kind of options and strategies. And so we've seen these kind of uh, documents come out showing that there was a lot going on. It wasn't just something that you know, spontaneously arose out of nowhere from the heat of the moment and a crowd aggression, that there was at least some, you know, game plans and strategizing going on in the Republican camp to, you know, not just challenge things through the court, but to try and find other ways to prevent 
the next government from becoming the government. And that did involve um, Vice President Mike Pence, um, you know, in a lot of those potential options. What are your thoughts on what has, you know, been coming out now? Like now that we actually can look back on that day, you know, do we know more about what happened than we did at the start of January? Do we feel like we've got more clarity on the significance of the event um, in terms of that attack on democracy that was actually really quite calculated? Look, it, it was totally calculated. And I think, you know, to, to answer your question, we, we certainly know more about the detail. You know, we know that there was a, a PowerPoint, which is a, is such a kind of weird, banal thing to talk about, that there was this, like, PowerPoint, you know, we have a PowerPoint for everything or a policy document for everything. But this PowerPoint was about subverting the democratic process and staging a coup. So we know more about that detail, but I think it's really important to kind of go back, you know, to before then and to look at what Donald Trump was saying before before the transition because he was saying it out loud. You know, he said even before the election that he would refuse to leave office if, if he lost the election because, you know, in his mind and the mind of his supporters, losing the election was impossible. You know, it was impossible for him to lose this election and therefore kind of subverting democracy, encouraging a coup was was only right. It was the will of the people. And that line is still being trotted out. And as you said on Fox News by incredibly um, popular news anchors, like oh, I shouldn't call him a news anchor, but by figures like Tucker Carlson. And so, you know, when you see this kind of narrative, I think around the investigation and, and these revelations in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of stuff about text messages about how, you know, Donald Trump Jr. or a bunch of Fox News um, pundits were texting the president and saying, you know, you have to do something about this, right? You have to kind of call it off and how, you know, that's evidence, I suppose, that that Trump didn't do anything, he didn't act and that that was treasonous. But I think it also shows a lot of the kind of calculation that's happening on the right where, you know, where there's still very much support for this kind of action, for this kind of democratic subversion. And you can see the way that that's playing out in the state, but in the states. But I think the way that it's kind of framed in much of the media narrative is that, you know, all, you know, there are still people on the right who support American democracy and didn't want to see this happen. But, but I think kind of what that just shows is that those high up figures, you know, Trump Jr., et cetera, et cetera knew as the right was unfolding that it wasn't going to work. And so we're, we're calling it back. But if it did work, they would be fully supportive of it. And you can already see Fox News, you know, kind of mobilising in that way. And I think that, you know, not only, of course, does that have enormous implications for the United States, but it has huge implications for Australia too, because what what happens to us? What happens to Australia should this play out successfully next time in the United States? What are the implications for, I don't know, our acquisition of, of nuclear submarines? Like the, the kind of ripple effect of this kind of catastrophe in the US is incredible. And I don't think we really talk about that enough. No. We definitely don't. And um, we will get to AUKUS later. <laughs> don't you worry about that. That was one of my highlights or slash lowlights yeah. of the year. Um, but, Luke, I also want to pick up on what Emma was saying in terms of America. And obviously we look to them a lot. Australia has had a long alliance with the United States and uh, obviously we've become closer and more inter- intertwined since we, you know, cut ties a little bit more from the supposed motherland of Britain, um, you know, being a a place that was colonised by Britain and really we've seen very little in the terms of um, constitutional recognition of Australia's First Nations peoples. And I was looking back on the year 
uh, and reminded that earlier at the start of the year we had a tiny little word change in our anthem, which was supposedly meant to, you know, be a meaningful step forward, um, changing the the lyrics of the the Australian anthem to one and free, not young and free. And obviously it did remind me of the, the fact that we've been talking about, you know, the Uluru Statement from the Heart and we've seen successive prime ministers and opposition leaders essentially ignore um, this you know, really critical document and what it holds and the voices of First Nations Australians and and Indigenous people. And so I I was looking at that and thinking, you know, where have we made progress in those areas? Um, You know, what has happened for, you know, any progress for constitutional recognition and, and for those, the voice to parliament and those kind of things that came up in the Uluru Statement of the Heart and, um, you know, clearly I think often will take a back seat, which is just not okay um, and certainly, but it does happen a lot in our political discourse. Um, well, I guess the short answer is there hasn't been much progress. Um, yeah, you pointed out, I guess, the change to the national anthem um, at the start of the year, which... Um, Gosh, uh, as sort of Emma was talking about, um, January 6th does feel like it was even longer ago than than um, 12 months ago, but um, there you go. No, I mean, the government um, has recently uh, um, announced um, how it's going to introduce its own sort of version of, of, um, of the voice um, following on from the statement from the heart, but, um, you know, there's not going to be any legislation on that introduced by the by the next election um, and um, the actual model that's been introduced is kind of has been criticised as not really reflective of um, the initial recommendations of the statement from the heart. I mean, it's probably worth remembering that when when this was all first um, brought forward, um, Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister and he had particularly strident language about um, what was proposed and that it would be a, you know, third chamber of parliament, the, the voice model, um, and he still maintains that. And since then, um, I guess, Scott Morrison and, and, and Ken White have been kind of saying that they're committed to doing something, but it's not quite clear how serious they're taking it. And, I mean, I think clearly it's been a busy past few years, but um, given the fact that we're only really hearing about what they would like to do now and um, it's not going to be introduced before the next election in any form, um, I think gives you a sense of where it sort of sits on the list of priorities um, for the government. Labor's kind of said that they're, you know, pretty much happy to implement it in in full. And I, I, I um, Anthony Albanese had a... Um, sort of mock uh, or, um, you know, quasi-campaign uh, launch a couple of weeks ago and in interviews on Lee Sales, for example, he's been pointing out, the, I guess, Labor's commitment to the statement from the heart as a kind of, uh, I think, point of difference um, for people looking for a bit of conviction from the, the opposition. Um, but to sort of circle back to the original question, I mean, no, there hasn't really been too much uh, progress on that front, I, I wouldn't have thought. No, it certainly doesn't seem that way. And it also raises so many other issues um, relating to inequality, uh, not just for um, 
you know, the broader society, but also how it affects Aboriginal women and children and, you know, First Nations people broadly. And that is uh, not just in terms of um, incarceration rates, which are, you know, massively higher in that population, um, but also, you know, domestic violence and family violence was an issue that came up early in the year. And we did see, you know, a massive women's march. Um, We saw a family violence, um, you know, summit being held on women's safety and a lot of calls for specific strategies to be put in place to protect um, Aboriginal women and children and to be, you know, led by them and their communities. Um, Obviously, that's an area that's still very much ongoing and it's an area that the coalition seems to have dragged its feet on as well even with the Jenkins report that came out recently on uh, harassment and sexual abuse and other types of harassment in the workplace at Parliament House you know the government wasn't um, absolutely you know jumping around trying to sign up to every single um, recommendation straight away so if we look at that issue, you know, from a, a bigger picture perspective and also um, look at its ties to America and this broader, I guess, Me Too movement, we had, you know, Grace Tame become Australian of the Year, um, you know, a sexual abuse survivor who suffered greatly as a child. Um, and so, you know, she's been out being such a vocal advocate. We saw Brittany Higgins as well um, come out and allege uh, that she was raped at Parliament House, and that is um, ongoing uh, through the courts. So we've got so many different moments in time earlier in the year where this really did seem to be the issue, and it also seemed to be the issue that Scott Morrison really floundered on. So I wonder if you had an assessment on that, Luke, and then I'll bring Emma in to um, you know, give us that broader picture. Well, I guess the first point to make, um, and, you know, I don't want to look at this issue just through a political lens, but um, I think, yeah, the the Prime Minister really did find it difficult. He he sort of, um, you know, my colleague Catherine Murphy talks a lot about how Scott Morrison can be quite um, nimble in his, I guess, um, the way he responds to issues and you sort of just don't really know where he where he is, he can be in one place and then suddenly he's saying something kind of different because it's opportune. But um, I think on this issue, um, you know, in February and March, he, he, he kind of, he looked a bit um, stuck because there was um, sort of, you know, the allegations that um, Brittany Higgins, um, you know, aired on television and, and in the papers um, um, were so shocking and the way that she spoke about them on TV was so harrowing that um, I think people that don't normally pay attention to politics were um, forced to or were compelled to. Um, and, you know, if you think back to some of the responses that he made, um, you know, there was the line that he gave um, where he sort of said at first, you know, he'd spoken to Jenny about it and, and that had sort of convinced him that he sort of needed to, the government needed to take this um, more seriously. Um, and I remember one uh, journalist sort of saying, well, rather than thinking about it like a father, what about like a human, which kind of was a sort of really damning uh, moment. Um, and then, you know, we had the March for Justice and, and again, the Prime Minister, he didn't go out and, and um, sort of front the, the rally um, there's some comparisons, obviously, that have been made to 
you know, John Howard's decision to do that um, during the gun reform debates of the 90s and, and sort of you had thousands of women come to, to Parliament and he didn't, he didn't want to go out and meet them um, and then made the comment about, um, you know, that it was lucky that in Australia um, people could come out and protest because in other countries they would be met with bullets. It sort of, I think, to go back to what I was saying, it, it sort of, he just was looking for some kind of way of getting out of a political problem rather than addressing um, what um, Brittany Higgins's allegation and I guess the sort of broader changes that we're seeing in, in society to sort of front that head on. Um, and even to come to the Jenkins report, which released a couple of weeks ago, um, the Prime Minister has been very careful to he hasn't committed to implementing all the recommendations and he's kind of done that by saying, well, these are, um, you know, recommendations for all political parties rather than just for um, the government. Um, and there's some truth to that in the sense that, you know, the recommendations will not just affect the government. But, I mean, there's nothing stopping him, I don't think, from sort of just saying, well, look, we'll... we'll um, take on all these recommendations and we would encourage other parties to do the same thing. Um, he's kind of, I think the, the opposition have been very keen to um, um, sort of be bipartisan at this moment on this issue. Um, and I, I think Scott Morrison has, um, I guess, been pleased about that. They've both been talking about working through the recommendations in a bipartisan fashion. So, um, yeah, I think it's been a tough issue for for the government, but um, I mean, more importantly, um, still there was a summit, obviously, but there's so much to do, and it's I, I'm obviously not best placed to answer this, but I, I imagine that there are many women who sort of question the government's commitment to, to some of these issues still. Mm, and it does really also show because we're seeing so many women. Uh, running as independents now in some very key seats for the coalition government in particular. Um, so it certainly has mobilised a lot of women to put their hand up and to say, well, do you know what, um, I'm not happy with how this is going. Uh, women are being ignored. Their voices aren't being heard. They're certainly not being heard within the coalition government, despite what uh, some coalition women say about their position there. And, uh, yeah, it certainly has led to a really interesting change in the political landscape coming into the next election. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see how that does play out as well and whether it does manage to unseat any coalition figures, uh, including, of course, Josh Frydenberg uh, in Kooyong. So, mm -hmm. yeah, very interesting developments. Um, Emma, bringing in the United States and also more globally, looking at that Me Too movement and also um, how women have been responding to their rights being threatened pretty much over and over. Uh, we have seen, you know, this issue being majorly a problem in America, particularly so many sexual harassment allegations, rape allegations. We've also seen women's abortion rights being consistently undermined and under attack in the United States through the courts. So, you know, we think that this issue should surely be over. Um, you know, it seems like a no-brainer for women to have control over their bodies. But um, in this day and age, we're still dealing with it. But we have seen, I guess, this increase in 
public awareness and also of women speaking out and voicing um, their experiences and for also for those allegations to be, uh, in some cases at least, taken more seriously than they have been in the past. Yeah, look, I think that's true. And I think, you know, in the US in particular this year, the the focus has been on the courts, I think, and and as you kind of mentioned, Amy, um, reproductive rights. But I think you know it's important as well to acknowledge some some I think some significant changes. You know, it, it's kind of got lost in the in the wash up of this year. But the R. Kelly conviction was was a huge one, I think, in the mm. United States because that in particular said really important things about race in America and particularly the treatment of black women and how black women are you know, often, especially black girls are treated as grown women and are treated as, you know, not, not even second-class citizens, I think, but but as, you know, kind of people who don't matter to society. And so that R. Kelly case was hugely important for black women in particular. And I think, you know, many hope represents some kind of step forward in the way that these allegations and cases are treated in the United States. But Having said that, you know, you, you use the phrase, Amy, over and over and, and we're back at the Supreme Court and reproductive rights and, and Roe v. Wade just in the last couple of weeks because the Supreme Court is currently considering a case from Mississippi around 15-week um, abortion bans. And because of Trump's major success, you know, arguably his kind of only success as president in installing a conservative majority in the Supreme Court, in in the dying days of his administration, it looks increasingly likely that the court will, um, I think, overturn is not the correct legal phrase, but will kind of ignore the precedent of Roe v. Wade, which you know granted women reproductive rights and the rights to, right to an abortion in the United States. It looks increasingly like that precedent will be ignored and so kind of effectively trashed that that Roe v. Wade will cease to become good law. That decision won't come, we think, until until June next year, just before the Supreme Court's summer recess. But the the prospect of that happening and of those kind of trigger trigger legislation in many states, which mean that if Roe v. Wade is effectively overturned, abortion will automatically become illegal in, I think it's about 15 states and, and possibly more. So that attack on women's autonomy, on, on women's rights is really at a, at a critical point, I think, in the United States. And, and so the focus has turned not so much from those, I guess the focus has kind of turned from those individual cases, those important individual cases like R. Kelly or important individuals like we see in the United States and they're kind of, I suppose, more political forum to that kind of systemic question of the Supreme Court. And that that's tied up, of course, in the United States with all kinds of questions about the whole political structure of the United States and, you know, whether it's broken, whether it just needs reforming or, or whether it needs to kind of start again, whether the Supreme Court needs to be the bench needs to be abolished and kind of radically reformed. I don't, I don't think Biden is really up for that. You know, he's not, we know he's not a radical, but if that decision does come in June, if, if Roe v. Wade is effectively overturned, I think that will, that will mean huge upheaval in the United States. Yeah. And obviously more demonstrations, I would assume, given that women were out on the street demonstrating about, you know, other similar matters. And, um, you know, it's been happening obviously for a number of years now, but certainly reaching that fever pitch at the moment. Emma, you also mentioned there um, 
black Americans and how they have been affected and obviously are not treated like human beings at all. And mm. it did remind me um, of a really, you know, key moment this year where we did see uh, Derek Chauvin be found guilty um, of murder, of, of the murder of George mm-hmm. Floyd. And obviously Black Lives Matters, you know, was a major movement um, before George Floyd, but it certainly reached a really major moment um, when he was murdered at the hands of Derek Chauvin. We have also seen uh, Derek Chauvin say that he's going to appeal the decision, so that's still um, an ongoing matter now. But it was uh, a big moment for George Floyd's family and, you know, we did see um, a big statue of his face being put up in um, New York City as well. So there's been these kind of moments where um, we've seen some kind of symbolic but also real progress, although it's a very, very slow kind of progress. And um, I did have the great pleasure of speaking with Monica Bell about this, who's from Yale University, about you know, these movements like defund the police, mm-hmm. um, which are not necessarily literal, but are about um, reforming police and how they interact with Americans, particularly black and brown Americans. So I wonder in that particular regard in America, you know, have how has things how have things played out for uh, black Americans and and particularly also maybe bring in the pandemic because that certainly has magnified inequality in America, certainly in a racial sense. Yeah, it absolutely has. And I think it's really important, Amy, to to connect those issues, you know, to see this this question as a systemic one, which Biden did, you know, in his I think in his inaugural address, kind of going back a year, to see the the treatment of black Americans, in particular African Americans, um, as a systemic issue rather than one kind of isolated specifically to policing. But that that policing one is is critical, I think, you know. And I think to look at the the way that prominent African Americans uh, leader community leaders reacted to that George Floyd um, conviction. Is, is really telling because, you know, the number of prominent intellectuals I saw react with genuine surprise that there was a, a guilty verdict in that case tells you a lot about what black Americans expect from the system in which they live in and the way that they expect to be treated. And I think that, so that was a really important and, and unexpected moment um, and one that, you know, shouldn't be underestimated in terms of its impact. But I think whether it it represents progress is a is a, a difficult question to answer because you know we have other trials happening at the same time. The the one that comes to mind is the trial of of Kyle Rittenhouse, who is the the white man who murdered um, several Black Lives Matter protesters. You know he he crossed state lines with a with a weapon and and shot people. And and the way that that trial has has played out or is playing out is you know, in pretty stark contrast to the to the Floyd trial, because we have a, a really a, a conservative judge who's who's doing things like saying that the the people who were killed can't be referred to as victims, and and a narrative around around the trial and around the media of it of of Kyle Rittenhouse um, as a kind of a, a, a sort of almost a martyr, I suppose, for the for the white supremacist movement, and we've seen him, you know, meeting with prominent right wing. Um, leaders and and being kind of lauded on on Fox News and so I think 
you know, those these, these two things kind of can't be reconciled and that is, you know, the kind of, I suppose, the mess, the political mess that is the United States of America. And so looking looking for progress is, is really fraught because you see so often this kind of what seems to be a step forward only to, to be followed by, you know, a couple of steps back to, to kind of mix my metaphors. And so mm-hmm. it is, you know, again, this is a kind of ongoing issue in the United States as well, of course, because as you said, Amy, this is playing out in pandemic response as well and in, and in healthcare outcomes where black and brown Americans are, are disproportionately affected by not just the pandemic, but but the unevenness and the inequality of healthcare provision in general, where, you know, Southern America vaccination rates in, in Southern America are incredibly low compared to the Northern states. And that that is reflective of, of a long history in the United States going back to before the Civil War and that, that ongoing question that, that Biden has kind of spoken about symbolically but hasn't really addressed um, legislatively or, or in terms of kind of dramatic political reform when we're talking about things like, you know, voting rights, again, which disproportionately affect African-American communities. And so, again, that, that kind of the importance of that systemic view, not only, you know, in the United States, but in Australia as well, you know, when you're talking about the treatment of women and the talk, the treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in particular, you know, when it comes to policing as well, that's a, a history and a present that we very much share with the United States. Mm. I'm speaking with Emma Shortis and Luke Henrique Gomez, and we are looking back on the year 2021, particularly uh, not just locally here in Australia, but also internationally and um, talking about those big events, big moments and big issues that have affected so many people around the world. And Luke, um, bringing you in around Australia, particularly thinking about our vaccine rollout, this is something which still has ongoing consequences right now. Uh, we obviously heard from the Prime Minister it's not a race. We need to take things slowly, be um, considered about this. That was largely because people said uh, Australia had not procured the vaccine supply that we needed to roll out vaccinations quickly um, and at the start of the year before Delta took off in our population here in Sydney, then over in uh, Canberra and Victoria. We've had lockdowns, which so many will be very acutely familiar with. Um, you know, this is an issue that now has effects because those who only recently have been vaccinated are not eligible for a booster vaccination until potentially March. Um, we can't even vaccinate those who are actually eligible, the 4 million who are currently eligible for a booster dose. Uh, by the end of the month, we've only done just under a million of those booster doses. And obviously the opposition has come out and said, you know, this is all because of Scott Morrison and Greg Hunter's health minister's failure to get the vaccines Australia needed, to put all our eggs in the AstraZeneca basket, to look at local uh, production instead of jumping at Pfizer when Pfizer came knocking mm. very early on. So um, looking at that situation right now and how vaccinations have I guess, affected the community this year. You know, this has been a major topic for so many reasons in Australian politics, and it's still a topic now. Um, you know, what are some of your reflections on 
on this issue of vaccination and, you know, managing to protect all of us through at least that mechanism. Clearly, vaccinations are not the only solution. Um, they're one part of a, a broader public health picture that we need to keep in mind and one I'll talk to Mary Louise about. But what are your thoughts about how that's played out in Australian politics and also how it's affecting us in our day-to-day -day lives right now? Well, I mean, I think that the, you, you um, rightly mentioned the Prime Minister's it's, it's not a race um, comments um, which are fairly, um, you know, uh, will be, I think, very well remembered by most um, uh, Australians for, for some time to come because of how um, wrong they were, basically. And I think if we think about now um, where I guess the booster program is kind of there is more attention given to it, but if you think about what's happening in Europe, um, they always, they're always a couple of months ahead of what will end up happening here, right? And so when the Prime Minister was saying in March that that's, it's not a race, um, you know, the United Kingdom and other European countries as well as the United States were already vaccinating people. They were ahead um, and we were behind. And by the time it got to winter, we had lockdowns and we had, you know, hundreds of people dying from, from those outbreaks. Um, so if we think about now... If we look about look at what's happening in the UK and in, in other European countries where restrictions are being reimposed and there's a sense of urgency and and real concern, um, it's it only seems logical that we can expect similar things to happen in Australia in 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 the coming weeks and months if we don't, I guess, stop being um, I suppose a, bit, a little bit complacent. Um, I, I really do think that's the case, and and the sort of I understand there's an, a desire to sort of um, uh, relax a little bit because we're, you know, it's it's summer and and things are open, but um, we do need to, um, I guess, keep our eyes peeled to what's happening in other parts of the world because eventually it will come here. Um, the the real result of the um, delay to the vaccine rollout is that um, if you think about it from an inequality perspective, um, the 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 people and the, the suburbs in, in metropolitan Sydney and Melbourne that were most affected by um, the lockdowns, COVID infections and deaths were those uh, lower socioeconomic areas with higher proportions of migrant populations and diverse communities um, because, um, as we've seen throughout the entire pandemic, some people don't get to stay home and work from home. Some people have to go out to work and they get the virus and they bring it back to their um, their um, family homes, perhaps in some cases where there are more people living um, in those homes than in other parts of the city. If you think about Sydney, the entire city was divided by the um, in, uh, stricter restrictions that were imposed in um, Western Sydney and Southwestern Sydney, those LGAs of concern compared to... Um, what was happening in the eastern part of the city where, as you know, we saw many images of people following in the rules by going to the beach and, and, and enjoying themselves. But the, um, I think rightfully the resentment that was felt by the other communities that couldn't do that and were under stricter restrictions kind of only amplifies the, uh, you know, those sort of fault lines that exist in our community. Um, we did some reporting at The Guardian and it's, the data is, you know, a couple of months old now, but 60% um, 
of the deaths that happened in New South Wales or in southwestern Sydney or western Sydney. And in Melbourne, um, this, it was a similar picture. You know, um, Hume uh, had about, at this point in time, it would have changed now, but it had, had about 31% of the, the deaths during Delta. Um, that's a really, it's a lower socioeconomic um, local government area with a high migrant population and a lot of people who don't get to work from home. So it all comes back to the fact that we weren't vaccinated at the levels that we would have liked to and therefore that was the consequence and, and the, the pain that was suffered wasn't, um, wasn't felt equally, I guess. Um, so you can only hope that there is um, not a similar sense of complacency this time around because, you, you know, um, Mary, uh, uh, Mary, who you'll be talking to in a second, will, will be able to say much more. But, um, uh, yes, it, certainly there are some concerns about what's with Omicron. So we can only hope that it's not the same, the same thing happens again, I would say. Mm. Well, just to give everyone an update, the numbers have come out in New South Wales and there's 3,057 new cases today there and 1,245 here in Victoria. So, you know, it has obviously risen again fairly substantially in New South Wales and huge numbers of testing is going on there and quite long waits for results as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it does you know, play out over the next few days. It also does remind me, though, and we talked about this, I'm sure, Luke, was how those who were were residing in um, aged care homes and also in disability care environments were supposed to be, you know, highly prioritised in the vaccine rollout, but actually ended up in many cases receiving yes. their vaccination very, very late. Um, in some cases when community transmission had already taken off in the area where they lived and obviously put them at risk. Um, and also we must remember that the vast majority of children are still not vaccinated. We've now seen some children um, finally get a chance to be vaccinated, but that's another group who are currently not protected yet and, you know, need to be kept in mind when we're thinking about um, measures to protect the whole of society and those who are most vulnerable. So um, I wanted to just cap off on uh, all of this, I guess, and talk about AUKUS, um, which now seems probably less important than that because we're talking about life or death, but... Um, we may be talking about life or death in a different situation moving forward because we have seen a lot of sabre rattling going on from Australia's government, particularly the Defence Minister and obviously the Prime Minister and even uh, senior civil servants, people in think tanks, um, talking about China's rise um, being seen as this great threat to Australia uh, how we need to now be on an assertive footing, not a defence um, kind of defensive footing, which is what Paul Keating pointed out at his press club uh, mm -hmm. conversation with Laura Tingle. Um, we've also need to put that into the context of AUKUS because that is really, it seems, where the United States is coming from um, in trying to foster this new closer military ties and capabilities with Australia and the UK. So, Emma, looking back at AUKUS, 
in, um, gosh, was it September? I think it was. Uh, and the announcement that blindsided the French and told them, by the way, we're not going to be buying your nuclear, sorry, conventional powered submarines, though they are experts in nuclear sub submarines. How do we make sense of that complete mess. And I, I do want to make mention that when I was looking at the lists of what happened in 2021 from other places, even in, um, you know, far-flung places, AUKUS made the list of every single list I saw. Um, so Australia has certainly come to prominence uh, globally through this massive diplomatic blunder. Yeah, that's that's one way of putting it. I think. Yeah. Look, uh, yeah. Look, I, and I think it, it's it is right, really, that Orcus should should make those lists, Amy, because I mean, on the one hand, it, it is in a way kind of possible to dismiss it as a kind of another another symbolic nothingness by our prime minister, who is you know pretty practiced at making big symbolic announcements, you know, with flags arrayed behind him that turn out to be nothing. You know, we still don't know any of the substance of this agreement, if there is any. So in one sense, you know, you can kind of laugh it off in a way because it may amount to nothing. And, and certainly the Labor Party has been increasingly, I think, you know, making space for themselves, you know, particularly should they win government, to to back away from from the AUKUS deal or at least to kind of modify it quite dramatically. So so there is that. But but also, you know, the reason it's making those lists that you mentioned, Amy, is because it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal for the United States to even say that it's going to share this nuclear technology in some form because they, they just don't do that. You know, they're hugely protective of that technology. And I, I certainly think it's possible that much of the coverage and, and discussion of the way that that sharing is going to happen underestimates how much control the United States would want to retain over that technology and its operation and maintenance. And, and certainly the prospect of those subs, you know, if, if we ever get them, if they ever kind of come to fruition, being largely controlled by the United States Navy, I think is a, is a significant one. And so in, in terms of the what kind of, I suppose, um, think tanks or, or IR specialists would call the erosion of sovereignty for Australia is is very real. But I think that the the keeping the bigger picture in mind about what this means and and why it may it makes those kind of end of year lists is is really important because as you kind of alluded to, Amy, that the framing of all of this of AUKUS is about the rise of China and containing the rise of China as if that's kind of possible, which it just absolutely manifestly is not. It, it, it's kind of framed as this, you know, necessary assertive defence of, of Australia and of, of the so-called Anglosphere. But the actual reality of, of this technology and acquiring this technology is very different because, the, you know, nuclear submarines are meant, as, as Paul Keating and others have pointed out, for forward defence. They're, they're meant for kind of, they have attack capabilities. This isn't just about a kind of benign defence of Australia's borders. It's about aggression and and signaling aggression particularly to china and so in in that sense you know this is incredibly dangerous and and escalating what is an entirely avoidable situation you know the the rise of china is is a kind of stark reality i don't think china can be contained in that kind of cold war anglosphere sense but but china can certainly be worked with and and the potential for nuanced diplomacy is there, but the Australian government in particular and the Biden administration, it has to be said, seems to be really completely uninterested in that 
um, in that option. You know, the United States is, is interested, the Biden administration is interested in protecting American power and seeing any challenge to that power as an aggressive one and so respond with aggression. And I think that the potential there for miscalculation is is absolutely huge. And and so for that reason, you know, I, I don't think we can underestimate the potential impact of this or of Australia going nuclear, which again has kind of been normalised so quickly in, in, uh, in the kind of mainstream discussions of it. But that's a huge deal, I think, for Australia to acquire nuclear technology and for that to then snowball, you know, into a local nuclear industry mm. or to have nuclear powered subs which are designed specifically to hold nuclear weapons you know that that escalation or that snowballing or whatever you want to call it you can already see that happening and again happening in Australia without any kind of democratic accountability or process yeah and the US designed subs using um, weapons grade nuclear materials and the French for example don't use that level so they do need to be changed and uh, recharged so there's a lot of nuance to this topic which has been glossed over very conveniently but don't worry I'm going to be picking it up in the new year I can guarantee it because <laughs> I've got lots of interesting people I've been reading about on that topic um, but just to close out this conversation now both uh, Luke and Emma are there like well clearly there's a major elephant in the room that I want to acknowledge it's something a topic that we talk about almost every week on this show so I don't feel like we've um, necessarily missed out on it but it is uh, the potential demise of the human race through catastrophic climate change which is clearly yes. a major issue for everyone um, and it's a, a topic that the uh, Morrison government hasn't been that keen on and uh, I did get a chance to speak to Richard Dennis about that in quite a bit of detail on November the 30th if anyone wants to go back uh, and look at the net zero by 2050 modelling and plan. Um, but for both of you looking back on the year, is there anything you wanted to mention that we haven't managed to talk about? Because I'm sure there's a lot we've uh, missed just in terms of your reflections and any kind of major moments that stick out to you that you wanted to mention. Luke, you uh, can go first if you like. I'll jump in um, and I'll, I'll keep it brief. But I guess uh, I obviously do a lot of reporting on the um, National Disability Insurance Scheme Um which has kind of had a very turbulent year. The government's been making series of assertions about the fact that it's now becoming too expensive. Um, and it, it said the same thing again, or it said it was very costly in the um, mid-year economic update the, um, that just happened last week. MyEFO. Uh, MyEFO, um, which it said uh, now it doesn't really want to do anything about this massive cost overrun that it claims is occurring. Uh, earlier in the year, it said it did want to do something about it and it was unable to um, get those reforms through um, with the support of the states. So um, you will definitely see uh, this um, sort of as a, a bit of a side election issue. I think Labor's really taken it up and there has been um, some fairly horrible cases in the media about people's plans being cut. Um, I imagine that it will, if the coalition are elected, I, I imagine that they will probably want to do something about the scheme and I'd be interested to see what Labor actually does if they are in government, if they sort of change their tune about um, about the program, only in the sense that, um, you know, the budget forecasts suggest it's becoming more expensive and Labor so far has dismissed those out of hand with 
some good reason for that. Um, but I imagine that this will, yeah, be an issue that will live on into 2022, which is a shame because ultimately it's about providing support to people who, who need it. And I think that's something that we should all support. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, Luke. And also please people check out what Luke has been reporting recently because you've um, been doing some really great work highlighting that inequality um, and those ongoing cases that people are putting um, through the tribunals about their plans. So um, thank you. Emma, on to you. Yeah, sure, Amy. Look, I'm, I'm really super glad that you mentioned climate change as, a, as an issue that kind of permeates 2021. And I think it's, it's really deeply connected to what Luke was saying about costs, you know, about things costing too much because we see the same debate playing out right at this very moment in the United States where, you know, Biden came into office kind of proclaiming a renewal of American global leadership on climate only to see his big package of climate legislation effectively torpedoed this week by somebody who said it's going to cost too much, you know, which is a kind of, we know a farcical argument because this same senator voted in favour of an eye-watering defence budget in that, you know, kind of $700 billion mark. So so this question of money and climate is an, an ongoing and critical one. And, and for me, it's really, for 2021, it's kind of symbolised by Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, you know, taking a rocket into space to come mm-hmm. back and talk about the importance of preserving the planet. But, you know, in order to do that, in order to come to that kind of revelation, he his, his rocket admitted, you know, what the equivalent of like a billion regular people would emit over the course of their lifetimes. And I think that that kind of stark inequality and just astounding disregard for the, as you say, I mean, the kind of ongoing survival, not just of the human race, but as a planet of a whole is, is really encapsulated in, in that one moment. And it's pretty fitting, I think, that it happened in the United States. Very fitting. Yeah, I do yeah, remember watching those billionaires going up into space and it was kind of sickening to watch just how, you know, rah-rah it was for them and, you know, yeah, it was very, very sad to watch. But one thing it does remind me of is also a chat we just had about Elon Musk and his Starlink satellites being put into low Earth orbit where there'll be about 60,000 of them very soon and that'll change the night sky forever. So um, I hope people can listen back to that chat with Keridan Dovey from um, November 30 as well and read her essay on that because it's another example of this, um, you know, changing of this of the earth and, and space even by, um, you know, tech billionaires and, and other people um, and we think it's all for good but actually there's a lot of uh, consequences to our actions. So, Thank you both for such a brilliant wrap. It's been so enjoyable for me to hear your thoughts on these topics. I'm sure for everyone listening, the same thing. And also really lovely to check in with you again uh, at the end of the year and to have this kind of group therapy session um, on politics (laughs) and and get your great expert insights. So thank you both, uh, Emma and Luke, today for your time. And I really hope you have a safe and uh, happy holidays. Yeah, you too, Amy. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Amy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense. My name is Amy Mullins. I'm here for the next hour and a half. Uh, 
approximately up until noon today. This show is Uncommon Sense and I'm currently joined by Professor Mary Louise McLaws. She has become a regular feature on this program and we've been absolutely very blessed to have her input and her expert advice throughout this pandemic. Certainly, um, we've had many in-depth discussions about different developments, including the UK variant, as it was kind of known at the time, and then into Delta and now into Omicron, of course, having popped up in the last few weeks to month. And Mary Louise is an epidemiologist. She's based at the University of New South Wales, and she's a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. And as I was saying, Mary Louise is many people's favourite epidemiologist, as they've told me, um, and they didn't think that was a thing that would happen, but they're very excited about the fact that she's here with us today, as am I. So I welcome Mary Louise and say that you have a huge fan base out there, and thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for those kind words. Um, I'm um, amazed at uh, the public and how they understand what epidemiologists do. And um, now, because, you know, once upon a time, we're all fairly introverted and, uh, and work behind the scenes. Uh, but sadly, this pandemic has brought epidemiologists with all sorts of wonderful expertise. You know, there are some that have expertise in global health and clinical care, et cetera. And gosh, they're doing a great job out there, um, you know, talking to the public. Mm, yeah, it does actually remind me, Adrian Esterman has been doing some great daily tweeting about the ref numbers in different states as well and keeping people updated. So there's lots of different ways that if epidemiologists in Australia are reaching the masses, not just radio, but through social mm-hmm. media as well. Absolutely. They, um, you know, they've all got different expertise and Adrian's expertise is certainly, you know, the maths and the statistics behind things. And, uh, you know, he's done some modelling on that or, you know, calculations. Uh, You can be pretty sure uh, that it will be spot on. Yeah, and it certainly has been in the past uh, when he's been modelling, for example, the Sydney Delta outbreak and looking at that. And, you know, that was something we were discussing only somewhat recently and also looking at, you know, the vaccination targets and these kind of things. But we have seen a new spanner in the works in this pandemic, and that is the Omicron variant. And it is notable to say that this is not a surprise to virologists and epidemiologists and public health experts because coronaviruses do evolve and certainly if you see high levels of community transmission in an unvaccinated population um, you are likely to see new variants emerge. So having Omicron arrive on the scene and with its various different mutations being different from Delta, um, you know, this is not something that we should be potentially shocked about. Uh, it is something that we would like to prevent, no doubt, is further variants emerging that become fitter and better at evading vaccination. So I wanted to go through, I guess, the the profile, the scientific profile of Omicron as we understand it right now and what some of the, the early science is telling us about it. And I know that you've been dialing into regular meetings of the World Health Organization about these issues. So I wonder if we could tackle some of the burning questions that we've got 
first of all, the kind of obvious one, which is we've seen cases tick up across the world just really quickly, and the doubling rate seems to be shorter in days for Omicron. So I wonder, do we know about just how infectious and transmissible the Omicron variant is at the moment, and is it worse and more infectious than Delta? Well, um, let me take you back uh, to uh, South Africa. So in South Africa, in um, from about August last year to around May this year, most of the infections were found to be uh, beta. And then all of a sudden, Delta took over in June this year in South Africa. And that was the case with a little bit of beta behind the scenes. And then in um, November, they, they saw an incredible takeover of a, a variant that was under um, um, investigation. And when the numbers went up so high, uh, they immediately talked to WHO, who then re-examined whether they could still call it variant under interest and decided that it had changed enough to make it a variant of concern. Uh, the South Africans the next day talked to the public and showed what they had already learnt. So they had learnt that, of course, um, uh, uh, over 10 areas in South Africa, there, there were um, uh, Omicron uh, cases that were leading the way. So they then uh, started to... Um, look at how fast Delta was taking over. And they shared that with the rest of the world. And, and they reminded us that there were only 24% of their population had been fully vaccinated. Testing rate levels were low, but they were really very much concerned. And um, they their virologists were doing amazing work and had already found that uh, 24% up to 24 to 37% um, of um, uh, daily growth advantage of the um, virus uh, showed that um, Omicron was more likely to cause um, faster infection uh, rates than had ever seen before. So we, we started learning that. And then, of course, um, we started to see evidence from uh, the, um, the UK, uh, showing that, of course, um, uh, Delta was more, we uh, used to be more likely to cause um, a household infections, but now Omicron took over and they were uh, twice as likely to cause household infections uh, and um, uh, more likely to cause non-household infections as well. So we were learning an awful lot both from South Africa and the UK because, you know, the UK took over uh, having more Omicron than, than South Africa. Now, that could be because the UK were very good at um, testing. Uh, so the public would come and get tested and they, were, they actually used rapid antigen tests um, that, you know, I've been calling for for a year and then finally they got um, approved, uh, but I'd love them to be free. Mm. And the reason that I think that the UK learned so much so fast 
uh, that they had so much Omicron was because they were doing uh, so much um, testing of the community. Um, and then the community would uh, then go and get a PCR test. So um, uh, it's more infectious. It has um, a, um, an advantage of infecting um, more rapidly. And then there was, of course, the idea that it um, could uh, get around your immune system and potentially um, cause more reinfection. However, I'm not sure that that's the case because I think that that original um, idea was around uh, South Africa. And I think what was happening in South Africa is that people certainly had a lot of um, a pre-infection with the different strains and their antibodies were waning. So they got another infection. So I'm not so sure that Omicron is better at um, causing reinfection or it just takes advantage of the waning of antibodies. Mm. And obviously that that's a key point to be making and a key point to be considering is how um, fast these natural antibodies that our body is producing to an infection last. And obviously for um, a virus that's evolving like this and like many other coronaviruses, we can't necessarily rely on our natural antibodies providing you know, a, a very prolonged uh, effect. And obviously, I've certainly seen many reports over Twitter in places that have had high levels of community transmission, like America and the UK, with people saying, you know, that they've definitely had COVID uh, at least twice this year in some cases. And some people have been, you know, double vaccinated, which means that um, it's not to say that vaccines don't work. They absolutely work at reducing the severity of infection and death. But we are dealing with something that's not as simple as um, some of the other diseases that we can vaccinate effectively against that aren't evolving and changing like this one is. So it is very you know, difficult to ensure that the nuance is captured, but you always do do that, Mary Louise. Um, talking about the severity of disease, which is another thing that's certainly been raised. And it's been something that people have been using as a bit of a caveat with Omicron and also a reason as to why we might relax things a bit and be okay with higher levels of community transmission. We've heard the Queensland Chief Health Officer say that it's necessary for uh, the Omicron variant to spread and to have uh, levels of community transmission that are much higher. And this is because some people have said uh, early on, and it's it was certainly um, only applying to a very small cohort of people, this observation, and it, they were quite fit and healthy younger people, was that perhaps Omicron was a milder variant to Delta. Mm -hmm. We have seen a study from the Imperial College in the UK say that that isn't the case. So we are seeing science come out at the moment to contradict that early um, kind of anecdotal assessment. And I wanted to to get your thoughts, given that you're across all of this emerging information and the emerging studies, and do we actually have any firm understanding of what level of severity Omicron is in comparison to the Delta variant? Well, I have to say I was gobsmacked when I heard um, those um, statements uh, that this is mild because 
um, it shows a um, lack of appreciation for the fact that the majority of Omicron, Delta, Beta, Alpha, um, you know, the wild strain, was always in young adults. Uh, why? Because young adults uh, do what they're supposed to do, socialise and work a lot, and they have more contacts. So even before Delta in Australia and before children could get infected, um, 41% of cases were carried by the 20 to 39-year-olds, the biggest proportion ever. And then with Delta, we saw all of a sudden under 40s, 70%, sometimes about 68, somewhere between 68 and 70% across both Victoria and New South Wales, the, um, the, the, that proportion was suffered by those under 40. And what I find just um, unbelievable uh, in Australia and the rest of the world is the idea of um, uh, rolling out vaccines according to the elderly. And we all love the elderly. We all want to make sure they're fine. But the elderly need to be protected from the young ones and the young ones need to be protected. And one of the epidemiological approaches to rolling out vaccine and boosters should have been let's protect the young adults first because they're the ones that get it, suffer it on all different levels of severity and spread it. Now, at the moment, um, in South Africa, 58% of cases are between 20 and 39. If you add the cases between 0 and 19 years of age, that's up to 69% of the population. So again, the young are suffering from Omicron more than any other age group. And um, when you look at it across the world, at the moment, that's about 35%. But that last time I looked at, at those um, those proportions was before all of a sudden the UK had a huge increase in cases. Then it was covered, uh, followed by uh, Denmark and Norway and uh, Canada. So I think they're just a bit slow to give the world uh, their breakdown of, of um, age groups. But my point is, is that when you start getting a large number of cases, then we start to see the elderly, the middle age, and the elderly get it, and then, of course, the difference in severity. So um, we will probably still see that as well, that um, most young people won't be hospitalised, uh, and then the middle age and the elderly will be at more risk of death. But I'll just remind you about what the definition is of a mild case, because this is really important. So for in an adult, it's a cough, upper respiratory tract symptoms such as sore throat, nausea, loss of appetite, um, vomiting, um, loss of smell and taste, headaches, body aches, and the same sort of thing for kids. Now, that can be considered asymptomatic or mild. So... Um, you know, not everybody would consider that mild. They probably think that they felt like they were hit by a mini minor. And then, of course, the moderate infections have been described to me as feeling as if they were hit by a bus or a truck. And that includes a fever, abdominal pain, diarrhea, chest pain, um, not taking in enough fluids, feeling dizzy when they stand up, etc. And so, 
really, um, we need to be um, told more by the authorities what uh, type of um, level of illness the young adults are feeling because they're the majority of cases and then also the 40 and overs because that might help us understand what to expect but also I think we can be we're sometimes a bit cavalier about who we choose not to put in hospital and who we do and uh, you know we hadn't put in anyone from a residential aged care facility and they had the hospital and the home care and basically their death rate covered about 75% of all deaths at that time. So it was just amoral. And I think that we should be understanding that the death rate at that time in the elderly was something like you catch COVID in your elderly, you 30% will die. So we really do need to get our health systems ready to take in the elderly. We don't want them to die sooner um, than they should. And also put the young ones in as well who don't have anybody to look after them. Because we in New South Wales have seen with Delta, people die that we weren't expecting. And, you know, you can have a rapid onset of complications without even realising it. So I do think that we need to work towards getting the death rates down. And when I did the death rates for New South Wales, and I was plotting them, you know, every 10,000 cases. Overall, we in New South Wales have had a death rate of about 13 per 1,000 cases, and in Victoria, it's about five. And we in, in New South Wales have um, a delay of about 10 to 14 days in um, peak of hospitalisation from peak of case numbers. So that tells me that we're potentially taking too long to put people in hospital um, or it's taking longer for the elderly to get sick to then get to hospital. But I do think that we need to be, have more uh, either home visits by um, community nurses to ensure that people that have got supposedly mild or moderate infections are being looked after to really keep that death rate down given Omicron is so much more infectious and our... Um, natural, you know, neutralising antibodies are waning so fast that I've estimated that you know, nearly 65 to 70% of people will be at risk of Omicron. Yeah, and it certainly is a great thing to point out, which is that the hospitalisation rate, which uh, politicians have been going on about, and obviously the ICU admissions as well, that is one metric. But as you say, thousands of people are being uh, considered as being under the care of hospital in the home in New South Wales, even uh, here in Victoria. Um, some people have been giving being given pulse oximeters to monitor their own blood oxygen levels because, as you say, things deteriorate very rapidly and they're not aware that they've dropped, you know, down into levels that are dangerous territory. Um, so this is something that is very tenuous. We did see in the last Delta outbreak that many people did actually die at home and many people were diagnosed even with COVID after death. So this is something naturally that we would want to avoid. Um, but one of the other things we'd also want to avoid and something we've discussed on this show is the incidence of long COVID 
Because as we know, the more cases there are that are positive in the community, the more chance there is that there'll be people getting long COVID. This is a major issue in places like the UK and the US. And we've seen uh, virus modelers from the University College in London warning that there'll be a protracted wave of long COVID and that they're estimating that there'll be new long COVID cases getting up to 862 a day by Christmas. So when things go out of control in, in places like the UK, we see this huge wave of people having short to medium to even long-term disabilities. And these are people who would not normally have been affected um, and would not normally have had an ongoing health issue that they now have to manage and potentially can't work, can't function normally. So I wanted to bring that in because it's a factor that is not brought up very rarely, certainly in Australia, um, in our public conversations, both at the political level, but even at this public debate between some modelers and epidemiologists um, advocating this idea of a natural herd immunity and that we should just uh, let things, you know, take its course, live alongside the virus, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what about long COVID, Mary Louise? And I wonder if you can shed some light on that. Well, it's certainly why I detest the uh, term living with COVID because um, who gets long COVID is very unpredictable. Now, there was a study done uh, on uh, 250,000 survivors uh, and um, it's across uh, multiple um, uh, studies and they found some really very, very fascinating things. For example... Uh, the main issues, uh, factors with long COVID is mental health. So, you know, in Australia, we've been in lockdown and you don't want to give up um, all of the gains that we've um, uh, achieved through lockdown. And me mental health, sadly, uh, was one of those um, disadvantages of it. Well, uh, so we worry about that. But then people who've had COVID are more likely to get mental health issues because it's a classic post-viral uh, um, response. Uh, that feeling of anxiety and depression had been identified with influenza uh, long ago. And then, of course, there was, you know, um, ideas of um, chronic fatigue syndrome that some infectious disease physicians thought which was just a mental health issue and not post-infection. Well, in fact, it is post-infection commonly. But one of the interesting findings in this review is that um, compared to, say, influenza, anxiety, for example, is more common in uh, post-COVID um, than post-influenza. So about 20% of people who've had influenza get um, post-anxiety and depression. Well, 27% uh, of people who get um, uh, long COVID suffer from that as well. And then the other issues are, of course, pulmonary, neurological issues, um, uh, fatigue, uh, you know, one of the um, um, unpredictable fatigues. You get up in the morning, mentally feel okay, and then all of a sudden feel exhausted and you've got to go back to bed. Um, muscle pain um, and headaches. And then a group looked at, at this um, and found that, in fact, long COVID, all of these 
factors don't start immediately in even the first 90 days. It can take up to 180 days or between 90 and 180 days. And for some of these long COVID uh, features, they can occur fairly immediately or later. So, for example, anxiety and depression, the proportion that acquire it early between the first day and day 90 is similar to the proportion that acquire it uh, or notice it uh, from 91 days to 180. But the biggest proportion uh, is between um, uh, that longer time up to 180 days. So I think that the authorities and the public are going to learn an awful lot about long COVID and this um, nonsensical uh, statement of learning to live with it. No, we should try to prevent it as much as possible so we don't have a huge proportion of people who may have had COVID very mildly, not got diagnosed. So what we think we've got out in the community could be even higher. And what we will see with people with cognition problems and anxiety and even, sadly, suicide ideation may be shocking. And one of the other things that this particular um, study found was that a feature of long COVID is often a multiple of features, you know, such as things like um, chest pain, abdominal breathing, abdominal symptoms and fatigue. So uh, you don't just get one, you get multiples of them. And then the study then looked at, well, who's more likely? And so males are more likely than females. Uh, those who are over 45 are more likely, but it doesn't stop the young ones from acquiring, uh, from, from having long COVID. Um, those who are, were hospitalised were more likely than non-hospitalised. But what I'm concerned about that finding is that um, we haven't followed the non-hospitalised cases uh, often enough to be able to see whether that was uh, what we call selection bias. We have more people who went to hospital, therefore we find that they're more um, uh, likely to get um, long COVID. And, um, and so uh, we're learning an awful lot. And can I please ask your listeners, you know, when you see people wearing a mask under their nose, what they fail to understand is, is that they could be breathing out COVID through their nose, but they could be breathing it in. And, you know, there's a blood-brain barrier and it's not very good at, it's not perfect at keeping viruses out. You know, we've got, um, you know, uh, men uh, meningitis in yeah. the brain when you breathe it up. So please put that mask over your nose so it doesn't go straight to the brain and, uh, you know, impair your neurons and that um, circular, circulation of of, of um information that goes, you know, uh, via, you know, your, your neurons. And if they're in, we don't know, uh, of course, you know, um, experts are looking at this about whether or not it's infected neurons that are in causing the brain functioning or whether it's um, the immune system uh, over-responding to this. So they'll find a lot about this and they'll and they'll get back to us eventually um, but certainly they're concerned about uh, neuroinflammation uh, coagulation you know in other words clots 
um, and depletion particularly of that neurotransmitters uh, that, that remind us why we walked into another room and what we wanted to do. And sadly, hypoxic injury. In other words, um, you know, fog brain where uh, your brain isn't working as well as it could have. Yeah, it's really very concerning. And I know anyone who's experienced a post-viral illness or disability ongoing would have certainly been affected, as you say, physically through all those different symptoms, including dysautonomia and postural tachycardia, which many people are also reporting with long COVID, but also the health, mental health effects of realising that they are not the person they were before this virus and that it may continue. So this is not something we necessarily want anyone to have in Australia. And that's why I'm quite gobsmacked similarly about this idea that we should live alongside the virus. Now we're seeing um, discussions about normalising the virus, quote unquote, here in Victoria from our Premier. We've got um, the Prime Minister saying that people can just choose to stay at home if they like. Well, immunocompromised people have already had to do that and will have to keep doing that, unfortunately, because of Omicron. And but also I think because we've wound back so many of the public health measures that we did have because p politicians had come out to say vaccinations are our ticket out of the pandemic. Well, we've heard epidemiologists and scientists say that that's not the case, that it's a vaccines plus strategy that's required here in Australia, but also overseas. Now, Mary Louise, just to close out this chat, Looking overseas right now, we've got um, the Netherlands going into lockdown, Denmark bringing in restrictions, the UK considering a circuit breaker lockdown at some point, potentially after Christmas. Uh, the US is seeing cases run rampant. We're seeing the CDC say that 73% of new cases are from the Omicron variant. And here in Australia, politicians are saying, well, it's summer, we're not in a, a European winter right now, uh, we're you know, going to give everyone their supposed freedoms that they've worked hard for and gone and got a vaccination for. And it's become quite a transactional type situation. Um, if we go out and get vaccinated, we go and get to do whatever we like. Um, in New South Wales, there's now not a mask mandate. QR check-ins are not required. And there are um, virtually no density or crowd limits in New South Wales and uh, very few here in Victoria, if at all. So I wonder, from a pandemic response perspective, and from your perspective, uh, looking at what's been happening even overnight here with the AHPPC, um, what do you think is required? Um, the, the World Health Organization Director General has said vaccines are not the only thing and they can't be. What should Australia be doing? And certainly very much uh, looking at New South Wales and Victoria as an example, what should we be doing um, and, and are we doing enough? And uh, obviously through the prism of this um, ridiculous phrase, personal responsibility. Well, one of the problems is uh, that we're always compared to the Northern Hemisphere for their winter and their winter and people going indoors is always blamed for increase in transmission. However, 
Australians have an increase in transmission in the summertime because that's where we get together with people. We have family and friends over for Christmas. Uh, we socialise and we don't always do it outside. And also Australians don't keep a large social distance, uh, that physical distance between people. We're, we're huggers, we're, we're, we're kisses, we're, you know, um, we don't just all um, do our elbow bumping uh, that, you know, is not who we are as, as a nation where, you know, 42% of us were born overseas or had parents born overseas. So we come from multiple cultures where keeping a physical distance isn't what we do. So we do need to understand that um, this time of year is the same as uh, winter overseas in increasing the risk of spread. And what we should have done is not just focus on the level of vaccination to reduce, um, uh, you know, the, the restrictions and lift them, but to actually then say, well, is, circul is circulating virus high? Has it changed? Because if it is, we're going to keep the restrictions even though the vaccination's high as well. And so what they should have done was to have a look at understanding what happened in Israel with their waning antibodies, then quickly looking at the UK and what they were experiencing, rapid increase. Uh, and in fact, the UK is now, you know, the, sadly, the place um, for um, Omicron with uh, something like uh, uh, nearly 11,000 cases. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, there's Denmark, et cetera, as well. So, um, oh, in fact, um, I think that was 11,000 cases they gave for testing. Um, so anyway, it's, I think it's up to something like 45,000 actual cases. Um, so what we should be then realising is that our vaccination rate isn't homogeneous. So while, for example, Australia may have reached uh, for the 12 plus about, you know, what, 89, 90%, uh, that isn't always the case across each one of the age groups. So the 12 to 15 aren't covered enough. And, uh, and that means that we've got about, I don't know, 25% of the, of the population in general uh, being at risk and anybody who had been given AstraZeneca at risk as well. So we need to tell people, um, plan to um, do all your entertaining outside wherever possible. Um, if you want to cancel going to a restaurant, don't cancel. Instead, um, go home, have your friends at home and have um, uh, delivery um, dinner and enjoy your friends. They hopefully have been um, double vaccinated. If they haven't, get them to do a rapid antigen test before they come over, and you do one as well. And it can become part of a, I love you, I care for you, you're my besties, and I want to keep you safe. And then wear a mask when you go shopping. And that way, it's not going to be perfect, but it's certainly going to reduce the spread. Absolutely. And uh, I just draw attention to your last tweet where you say just 30 to 35% of Australians have symptomatic protection from Omicron based on a UK study and Australian data. So we need to make sure that those who are eligible for boosters also go and get their booster vaccination 
And um, that's just one component, as you say, of a much broader public health response that we need to do, not just at the government level, but also over Christmas where we can, um, you know, protecting each other and showing care for each other. Thank you so much, Mary Louise, for joining us today. I know you have to run off to a meeting, so I appreciate your time and I really hope you have a great uh, holiday and also a really safe one. Well, it's always lovely to be invited to your show. And please, um, you and everyone, uh, stay safe, enjoy Christmas and get that booster. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks so much, Mary Louise. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.